name is Daniel T, and welcome to the SA Fireside Podcast. Each week, we bring you another fireside chat with an old-timer discussing the questions and topics we compiled surveying the world of SA. You can visit us on safireside.com to hear all the recordings. And if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at daniel at safireside.com. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. It's our hope and our goal that this recording will help those old and new to the program to gain more tools that will help further their recovery. And so, without further ado, it's time to hear today's Fireside Chat. Welcome to today's SA Fireside Chat. I sat down with Nicholas from the UK and he shared his experience, strength and hope on a variety of topics. I've had the pleasure of meeting him before and I really enjoyed sitting down and hearing his thoughts on all of these. Nicholas got sober on the 12th of April 1995, shortly before discovering SA. He served at all levels of the fellowship from group through to the board of trustees and back. He led the formation of the European and Middle East region the EMA, and he pioneered what later became the SA Internet Marathon, originally the Geek Camp. He regularly leads workshops in which SA members complete the 12 steps in 10 hours. He has three children plus seven grandchildren, and he now lives in the north of England. And so without further ado, here's my fireside chat with Nicholas S. Welcome to another SA Fireside Chat. Uh, Today we have Nicholas S. from the UK joining us. I'm very pleased to have Nicholas uh, here with us. Thank you for joining. Pleased to be here. Thank you. So, so the basic format of this chat, uh, we, what we want is for it to be a real resource for uh, newcomers coming in, uh, but however useful for everyone. Um, to begin with, what, what would li- I'd like to do is for you to share a little bit of your story, um, a very brief qualification, five minutes of w- what it was like, what happened for five minutes, and then what it's like now. Um, and then we'll go into a little discussion on these uh, questions and topics that have come up through surveying the world of SA. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass the, the mic over to you and uh, let you introduce yourself a little bit. Thanks again for joining. Thank you, Sue. My name, my name is Nicholas. I am a recovered lust addict. I've been sober by the grace of God and the program of Sexholics Anonymous since 12th April 1995. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, my first sexual experience was about the age of six or seven. It involved an adult woman, and it definitely changed me. Uh, I was after something from then on, and I didn't even really know what it was. Uh, absolutely fascinated, obsessed with women, with body parts, with eventually pornography. Of course, uh, found, found out about masturbation as a, a young teenager and got hooked immediately. I mean, there was no question for me. Once I experienced it, I could not stop. 
In fact, I couldn't get to sleep at night without doing it. And this caused me huge problems because I was brought up in a, in a traditional organized religion, which had very strict boundaries around this kind of thing. Um, and so that developed into rituals of um, going to confession, to confess my sin, and then doing it again, and feeling terrible about myself, and uh, a very dark sort of time of my life in my teenage years, uh, which I eventually resolved by chucking out my religion and pursuing lust instead. So for 25 years, I threw myself with great energy into the world of lust. It was the 60s, uh, you know, clothes were coming off, free love was with us and all this, and I dived into that with abandon. Uh, initially, it was solitary masturbation and pornography because I was too scared to talk to females. But once I discovered alcohol, then I overcame that particular reservation. And I basically, basically became a serial fornicator. And, um, and, you know, and I just thought it was great. Um, I didn't have time to reflect that all these sexual experiences were ending badly. They were all ending in shame and remorse and moving on to the next one, hoping the next one would be better. And really, the story just went on like that. Um, you know, the pornography got harder. The relationships got shorter. The trauma became greater. Uh, and by the time I was 42, I had destroyed two careers, quite high-powered careers, two marriages, and lost a huge amount of money. And it was at that point, I was just about to start career three and marriage three, when I was 12 stepped. somebody came into town who talked about the term sexual addiction, which was something I'd never heard before. Uh, and the effect on me was traumatic. It, it brought me to a complete shuddering halt. It was like I'd hit, been hit over the head with a sledgehammer. So uh, I decided I'd need to find out what all this was about. Um, I went to my first meeting, which was uh, another S Fellowship, not SA. Um, and I started to write my sexual inventory. I went on page after page after page, all this sexual stuff, you know. And I realized that sex was the central activity and obsession of my life. It was all, almost, you might say, the assemblage point. It was like my whole of my life become about enabling sex. And um, at that stage, I didn't really have the last concept. But um, anyway, I joined this other S fellowship and for uh, committed myself to four self-defined bottom lines. No pornography, no masturbation, no sex outside a committed relationship, and no relationship for the foreseeable future. And I did that for four years, and I was sober, according to that definition, for four years. Reality was that I was still doing some kind of lusting. Um, for instance, I, I noticed that uh, when I was driving a car down the main street in the town, that I was actually driving dangerously because part of me was looking at women in the side, side on the sidewalks. So there was still lust was still active, but that somehow I knew that I couldn't really be entertaining sexual fantasies and so on if I was going to stay sober. And that awareness stayed with me. After four years, I, I decided, you know, without the benefit of a sponsor, that it was about time that I engaged in a, a committed relationship in recovery, as I saw it, and selected a suitable victim, um, somebody else who was in recovery.
and embarked on a sexual relationship. Well, things started going wrong very quickly. You know, boundaries started slipping. Uh, she was an untreated incest survivor, and sadly, after we'd been sexual, the next day she would be violent, really violent, and I was having to defend myself. This is you know, not not a happy situation. And so, um, um, at this point, I it it occurred to me that I was going to have to change my sobriety definition to no sex outside marriage. And I didn't want to do that. But after two weeks of struggling with it, I decided to make that commitment and uh, committed myself uh, on the 12th of April, 1995, to, um, uh, to sexual sobriety. And um, by the essay definition, although I'd never found essay at that stage, so I hadn't found essay. So um, I made that commitment. My sobriety has started at that point, even though um, I had not found essay fellowship, uh, and I've been continuously sober since then. Now I, I did understand that if I was going to stay sober, I couldn't be entertaining fantasies. I couldn't be looking at pornography. I couldn't be leering at women in the street. I, you know, I, I had to try to maintain a clean mind as well as uh, you know be clean from my behaviours. Um, but uh, shortly after this, I went to a meeting of another fellowship and, and, I, and I heard and met my first member of SA. So I, I found this whole fellowship, Sexaholics Anonymous, which had um, the same sobriety definition as me. No sex outside marriage. So I, I, I you know, I... I, I <laughs> I started to participate in the fellowship, but it took me a year to actually join. I mean, I really to get on board and become a part of, rather than a sort of a observer on the sidelines. It took me a year to become part of the fellowship. Um, and I, uh, uh, I thought it took me a year to get a sponsor that I would really obey and uh, whose directions I would follow uh, and who I couldn't control. So it took me a while to actually get into the fellowship. But once I got in and I began to feel more increasingly more at home, um, you know, to dart off conventions were rather frightening things, but soon I became very comfortable there and really looked forward to them. And, and you know, I, I would always participate in the convention um, in the UK uh, whenever there was one. I don't think I missed one unless there was an you know, overwhelming reason I couldn't go. Uh, I also started participating in overseas conventions. I started getting involved in service work. I started to sponsor people. I started to work the 12 steps. Um, I started to help other people to work the 12 steps. And gradually, you know, life became better and better. Until, let's say now, you know, it's 26 years down the line. I've managed to be continuously sober during that time. I've not just been sexually sober, but I've been last sober for, for 26 years. And um, and life's got on getting got in getting better and better. I mean, just at the moment, I'm I'm now seventy two years old. I live in the north of England, uh, near my family, um, and I I think this is one of the most blessed periods of my life. I think I can honestly say I have I've been very very happy since I've been here, and uh, and I just keep experiencing the promises of of, of the. the 12 steps, uh, and life continues to get better. Um, and uh, the fact that I haven't had sex for 26 years is, is actually of no, isn't of no concern to me. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. It doesn't affect my feelings of, 
uh, wholeness of masculinity and so on. Um, uh, you know, the benefit of cleaning house is that you get to live in a clean house. And I'll leave it there. Wow, that's a powerful story. Thank you for sharing it. So um, so we surveyed the, the world of SA. Um, we sent out a few questions. That the, the, the core of the questions were, what did you really consider um, was you know what did you what did you not understand when you walked into the rooms? What, what would you most like to ask an old timer? Uh, what concept that didn't make sense to you when you walked in? Um, and so we have a bunch of questions around a few different topics, and I wanted to go through them if that's okay with you. Um, so you you mentioned that you're lust sober. So yes, mo- most people coming into the rooms um, they think that their problem is acting out. Um, they think that their problem is masturbation and pornography. Um, and then they're informed uh, in SA that their problem is actually lust. So how would you describe lust? What is lust? Yes. Well, lust is actually a very difficult thing to talk about because it is like love. It's a spiritual quality. And um, we, we kind of know what it is, but, it, but to put it into words is, is, is really difficult. So what I say, it's, it's an, an inordinate desire for something that God doesn't have for me. I mean, uh, it's a gimme, gimme, gimme. Um, I want this. You know, I wanted to get back into bed with that woman that I first had the sex experience with. And, you know, I, I, it was a, like a strong desire coming from just the core of my being, but to something that's dark. In, in, in its essence. So are there lust addicts out there that are not addicted to sexual lust? This is an interesting, um, it's a very interesting question that, because I, I remember on one occasion trying to 12-step somebody who was on the a sex offenders register, had been in prison for um, molesting a, a, a very young child. And uh, I, having questioned this guy, uh, became convinced that he wasn't a sex addict. He wasn't. He wasn't sexually addicted. He was. He was lusting over this child. In it's more about power over. And so I think you know we could lust for power as well. Normally we think of sex, lust as sexualized sexual lust, but it's you could say that you know, gluttony is lust for food, greed is lust for money, and. Um, there is a kind of a lust for power, a lust for control. And uh, I remember the person who 12-stepped me that brought me into recovery, one of the things that she said was, underneath all addictions is the addiction to control. That's controlling ourselves and controlling others. Because we're trying somehow to make ourselves feel comfortable by rearranging all the players on the, on, on the stage. But I guess that ultimately, because, you know, talking about things like gluttony and, uh, and pride and power, I mean, uh, you know, these, this concept of the seven deadly sins, that lust is the sexual realm. So I guess it makes sense that when we're talking about lust as our problem, it's, we're focusing on sexual lust. Yes. About lust of the eyes. That's where, you know, I'm looking lustfully at people, places and things. And there's lust of the flesh, you know, where I am you know, wanting to get something sexual. But also I'm wanting to get a, a sort of a, 
a chemical state in my brain where, whereby I am intoxicated. And I think that's something that I really recognize now. That I, I was looking, when I was looking at pornography by masturbating, I was trying to change the chemical makeup in my brain so I could get to sleep or so I could pet myself up or bring myself out of depression or whatever. But of course, inevitably, eventually, you know, the brain would reset itself and I go back down the hole again. So ultimately, it is a form of self-medicating. That's yes, what we're doing. Definitely. Right. Um, and so lust is the root of my problems? Well, I would say that uh, lust is the, is, is the, is the gateway. Um, it, 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 you know, you refer to the seven deadly sins, and uh, they are, uh, you know, they come at us in a particular order, and um, lust is the num is the second, and and so it's a it's a stage on the journey. I wouldn't go as far as to say uh, lust is the answer to all my problems, or recovery from lust is the answer to all my problems. I, I would say that it it is a major hurdle, perhaps the biggest one, which I have had to get over in in you know, in my spiritual journey, which is which is more things than just lust. And what is what is it like living free of lust? Well, you know, the, <laughs> you'd think it would be easy, but the reality, of course, is that I get tempted all the time. Well, not all the time, but most days there's some kind of a lust temptation to look again at an image, to look at somebody in the street, to have a sexual fantasy or a romantic uh, obsession or a or a recall of something from the past. So these things come at me all the time, and um, you know I don't. I'm never going to be relieved of those. I, I could be. I mean, I believe my higher power is capable of ripping all that stuff away from me, so I'm never tempted again. But you know, he doesn't do that. So I'm left with this challenge on an almost daily, hourly basis of surrendering each one, each temptation as they come. And but the. The effect of living without entertaining lust is amazing. That is the that sense of living in a clean house. And it's a joy. I'm not accumulating guilt by doing wrong in that area. You know, and when I consider how much accumulating I used to do, I mean, I used to go out into the street or, you know, on the tubes in, in London or whatever. And I would store up images, sexual images, so I could go back home and use them for masturbating. Yes, uh, that was definitely one of my MOs. Yeah. And, and today, I, and I, I, I don't do that. Uh, you know, if, if I something, see something out of the corner of my eye, I'm immediately into prayer, looking away. I'm praying, you know, because I... I know that it's natural for me to lust. Uh, it's supernatural for me not to lust. So, I, you know, it's like that's where God's intervened, is to take me out of my natural inclination to lust and, and taken me into, you know, his kingdom where lust isn't, isn't present. Um, what I'm really saying is that being free of lust is the closest you can get to heaven on earth. Hmm. I thought about it that way before. I could say that. Harvey would say that's a spiritual experience that you just had. 
Mm. Yes. <laughs> you used the word wrong. And is this about wrong and right? Yes, it is. And, uh, and, and that's why you know, I'm so glad to be able to refer back to the early program, uh, you know, as described in Dr. Bob of the Good Old Timers, written before the big book was written and the 12 steps were formulated, which makes it absolutely clear that this is a moral program. You know, uh, an alcoholic, not only must an alcoholic uh, want to stop drinking, but he must exclude from his life other sins such as adultery, hatred, and others which frequently accompany alcoholism. Unless he will do this absolutely, Dr. Bob and his associates refuse to work with him. This is really clear. This is, what, this is a moral program. If you don't believe in right and wrong, it's very difficult to write a list of defects. If you can't write a list of defects and you can't surrender them to your higher power, and you know, in my experience, if you don't do that, he won't remove them. So you've got, you're going to be left with them, just doing the wrong and denying it. But, you know, perhaps we ought not to get too, too deeply into the weeds here. You know, the thing is, I have a problem, lust addiction, and there is a proven reliable means by which I can arrest that illness. So, you know, let's just get on and work the 12 steps and get spiritual awakening. So I then become the kind of person that no longer needs to do this self-medication. Um, one thing you mentioned before was around sexual fantasy. Now, I've noticed that it's very common with the old timers that they bring it all the way down to the core of the problem being sexual fantasy. And, and for many of us coming into the rooms, um, you know, I, I mean, for me personally, I can speak about myself. Sexual fantasy was something that happened many, many years ago that got, you know, pushed aside for many other, you know, actual acting out activities. And it wasn't until I got sober that I noticed that sexual fantasy was still, you know, a problem there. But the old timers really identify sexual fantasy as as the core of the problem. Well, it, it, I, I understand absolutely that if I'm going to entertain sexual fantasies, eventually I'm going to act out. It's the, it's the thing that starts the ball rolling. And, uh, and the longer it goes on for, the less the possibilities of, um, of me avoiding a relapse. So therefore, the secret is to nip it in the butt exactly, immediately, within a second or split second then it's, it, it has no power. It can't get hold. But once, it, once the fantasy begins to get hold, it becomes really difficult to shift. You know? Then, you know, then we have to you know, pray like our life depends on pick up the phone, talk to another sexaholic, go around and pick up litter, you know, do whatever it takes to dislodge it. It's an obsession. It gets into the mind and it sort of keeps going. And I guess then it uh, sparks the phenomenon of craving, which we'll talk about a little bit in the first step a little bit later. Exactly. Um, so, so, so the next section is all around what I what I call the "I'm different" section, and it's the um, which we're all different walking into the rooms. So it's it, it, the question around really, you know, is there really a hope for me to get sober? For me, does this program work, and could it really work for me? I mean, who struggles as 
as as hard and as difficult as my struggles are. So, I mean, what, what do you say to someone who says, you know, why me? And is this program really going to work for me? Okay. Well, I suppose I have seen people come into the fellowship who are high bottom sexholics, low bottom sexholics, medium bottom sexholics. You know, I, I don't even know where I maybe, maybe I'm a medium to low bottom sexholic myself. The important thing is that at some point, I wanted to stop and became willing to go to any lengths to stop. I was given the gift, gift of desperation. And, and this, is the, this is the important quality. So for somebody who's saying, you know, can I, can it, will it work for me? I would say, yeah, <laughs> if you want it enough and you work it, then there's no reason why you can't get sober. You you may have to go to you may have to go to some lengths which are perhaps a little further than than, than some others. I you know I can't say. I mean, some people have to work a very strict program of food abstinence in order to stay less sober. Okay, I mean you know some some people don't have to do that. That's um, but if you're willing to go to any lengths to get sober, you will get sober. I, I don't believe. There's such a thing as a hopeless case, except if the, the their own disposition is is hopeless. I mean, if I if I think I know better, if I think there is no God, if I think I don't need no God. I mean, if, if the, in in these sort of situations, the contempt prior to investigation, the kind of this, you know, I, I'm hopeless and helpless. It can never work for me. That. You know, we call cursing the Holy Spirit. It's like you know, th then there's probably no hope. But for anybody who is willing to do what's required, and let's face it, what's that? Join the fellowship, get a sponsor, work all twelve steps, and do service. That's what's required. Do that. You know, wholeheartedly with a desire to 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 get sober, honest desire to get sober, to get sober. So do you think if someone knows they have to stop, but they're not desperate enough to stop, then it's not going to work? Probably not. I mean, I, I find I'm working in a, sort of a service as a, sort of a, as a newcomer's, loner's contact for people coming into the fellowship of the UK. And, and, and I know probably only about one in four of the people that I get to talk to actually really want to get sober. Most of them seem to have something going on that they want to carry on with. They don't want to get sober according to the essay sobriety definition. That's what I'd say. You know, they, they've got a relationship. They want to keep keep it going. They want a sexual relationship outside marriage. They want to keep that going. Well, unfortunately, that's not a, a sobriety definition which is um, in current current common currency in essay. So they're in, they'd be in the wrong fellowship in that situation. So I, and what I can do with them is say, look, hey, you know, there are other fellowships that will better accommodate you. You know, with SA, um, we we have, we you know, our, our door is fairly narrow, you know, <laughs> to get through it. You've got to want to be sober according to the SA sobriety definition. Not everyone wants that. That brings up interesting points because um, – the essay sobriety definition can be very, you know, can be easily abused. And a person could go to pornography all day long and say they're sober in the essay sobriety definition. Technical well, sobriety. 
they wouldn't get past that if they were my sponsor. They wouldn't get that. They wouldn't. They wouldn't get that past me. Um, the people who are long-term sober are people who turned their back on lust. It's a program of lust sobriety. Zero lust. That's what we're about. If you don't want that, then SA is really not the place for you. Uh, if you want to control and enjoy your pornography use, well, I mean, that's to me, that's, I mean, I have a strict definition of sex with self. That is doing anything which sexually arouses me, purposefully doing something to sexually arouse myself or allowing myself to become sexually aroused without, you know, intervening, without surrendering or taking myself out of the situation. This would be a loss of sobriety for me. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't consider somebody who was looking at pornography uh, to be sober. <laughs> Why do we look at sobriety? To, uh, to self-medicate, to change the way we feel to arouse ourselves sexually and get all those sort of stuff running around in our, in our brains. Not so bad in my book. And you can point to the white book and you can claim te you're technically sober until you're blue in the face. But you know, I'm here because I want to be lust sober and I want to be with other people who are lust sober as well. Isn't uh, zero tolerance for lust, being lust-free a little bit... Um, of a of a of a greater challenge than what the founders put down as progressive victory over lust. Okay, now obviously I can't speak for what Roy Kay had in mind when he wrote the White Book, but I was present when he reset his sobriety definition back from twenty seven years to I think it was eighteen years. And he did that, and he told us, I was there in the room at the time, and he did that because he only wanted to claim lust sobriety. And there had been an event during his recovery when obviously he had entertained lust to some significant extent, even though he hadn't acted out. And he wanted to bring it back to that point. And I have always admired him intensely for that, the courage that he did you know, to do that. And, um, and I know for myself, when I came into SA, first of all, I was claiming five years of sobriety when I first came in. And I realized, no, I, you know, I can't do that because I might have considered myself to be sober by my own self-imposed uh, definition. But I, not, that's not, that wasn't five years of sobriety by the SA definition. Four years, you could argue, were, sort of, but the last year wasn't. So, you know, as I had to... After I'd been in the essay for a while, I basically reset my sobriety as well. So I only now claim 26 years of lust sobriety. That's what I mean. In that time, in the last 26 years, I have, I have not intended nor fully consented to lust. Now, there's been partial consent, you know, a second to maybe even a minute yet, there's been partial consent to lust. But I've never, ever fully consented. I've never given it, okay, bring it on. I've never, I've never gone, okay, I'm going for it. You know? um, and so that's, that's how I see it. Lust sobriety, never to have intended and never to have fully consented to lust. 
my will set against it. I guess there is an argument to say that for especially people coming in on day one and in early sobriety, the concept of zero tolerance for loss is going to be a lot harder than progressive victory over loss um, to give people a journey to go on rather than an end goal on day one. I agree. But I, I think it's important not to be too attached to one's uh, sobriety date, it, 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 to be attached to the principle of honesty. If you... If you are in doubt about, I'm sure, you know, Daniel, you'll often have, have this, you know, somebody's come, come to you and they said, well, look, I was, I was looking at some pornography, but I didn't masturbate. You know, am, am I still sober? Now, the reason they're asking is they're not sure. Well, you know, if in doubt, leave it out. It's, it's, I, I want to be sure. 26 years sober, that's 26 years of lust sobriety, okay? I do not have an example of having intended lust or fully consented to it in 26 years. So I, you know, I, I get to live in a clean house. I'm not, I'm not living with some uh, bit of bad conscience about something. Absolutely. Um, so the next section is around getting sober. How do I get sober? How did you do it? What do I got to do? to get sober. And there's a few extra questions around that. There's, what do I got to do to survive withdrawal? And we don't speak a lot about withdrawal, uh, which can be quite painful. For me, it was quite painful. And the other side of that is, you know, what do we suggest? What do we say to someone who's frequently relapsing? So those are a few questions around getting sober. Yes. Well, it, it was... You know, first when I first got sober, admittedly in the other S fellowship, you know, it was a very crazy time. I remember my my mind was 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 not in a good way, and I I think I should possibly have been in a mental hospital at that time. You know, it was because I, basically what was going on was the whole of my operating system was all geared to lust. The whole of my life, everything that I did, what I wore, what I, where I spoke, the way I acted, the, the, the pastimes I engaged in, the car that I drove, was all about enabling lust. Now, suddenly, bang, that's all stopping. And, and the effect on my brain is a complete reset. Well, you know, I was it, it's just being mad. No, that's, that's, that's what it sounds like. No. How could the whole of my life, the whole of my world, suddenly come to a screeching halt? Um, the physical withdrawal wasn't too much of a challenge for me. I had more um, withdrawal problems when I realized that custody of the eyes was going to be a significant hurdle to overcome. Um, that over years I had trained myself to look whenever I heard high heels, whenever I smelt the smell of perfume, when I, whenever I saw something out of the corner of my eye, I was looking for her. You know? and, and to break that was really difficult. You know? And I, I had to become an expert on paving stones and chimney tops. And then even then, I mean, you know, I'd hear the click, click of the high heels, and my, I, you know, my head would turn. My head would turn, and uh, I, I knew that I had finally got somewhere. One day, when I heard the click, click, my head began to turn, and as it turned, my eyes went in the opposite direction. 
I managed to get custody of my eyeballs before I got custody of my neck. Right? But then slowly, slowly it comes. Now, the withdrawal in that was a kind of depression. It was like, oh, this is terrible. If life is going to be like so much fun, you know, let's die. It was that kind of withdrawal, I think. I'm, I had been using lust to, to medicate, to, to change my chemical structure in my brain, and now I was no longer doing that. And it took time for the brain to reset and become normally happy, normally at a reasonably, not elevated, reason, at a reasonable mood level, you know? So there were some challenges there. And then I suppose the other thing is that uh, the withdrawal on the spiritual level, it results in a lot more attack. Yeah. I mean, just as God wants me to be sober, there are other forces that want the opposite. And, and they're going to get very busy. I mean, for instance, I don't know whether you've experienced this, Daniel, but whenever I'm about to do something really good in terms of my recovery and for the recovery of other people in the fellowship, I get an attack. Extra powerful temptations becoming heavy, particularly if I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. But, but especially when I'm about to take a step forward in my recovery, that's when it'll come at me. And so uh, withdrawal can, can have those kind of problems as well. well. I definitely relate to the, the, the realization that I had to have custody of my eyes and that whole process of changing something that was just so deeply innate in my being of having zero custody and looking at everything and everyone and kind of going through a mourning process. Like, is this really going to be like that? So I, I really relate to that. Um, and what about the frequent relapser? Okay. So the, this is, this is, I mean, it's a definitely a very ongoing continuing problem. And uh, I've spoken to many such people in my time in SA and I have tried various things, you know. Um, have you joined the fellowship? Have you got a sponsor? Have you worked all 12 steps? Have you, are, you, are you helping other people to get through the 12 steps? You know, and usually there's a no to one of those. So we can see that there's a hole in their pro program. There's, they haven't really accessed the essay solution. Um, uh, but the thing, the one thing that seems to me, in my experience, that can set people most quickly on the path of um, lust sobriety is some kind of fasting. Now, it's as if we're full of toxins when we come in, physical, emotional, spiritual toxins, you know, and, and we have to somehow, we have to fast from those. So I think this is where in the white book, you know, Roy talks about putting lust down. We have to put the lust down. You know? We may also have to, uh, do a little bit of physical fasting. You know, for instance, I found it particularly helpful for people to abstain from complex carbohydrates and um, and eat a a simple you know three meals a day with nothing in between sort of thing. This is this is this is this sort of cleansing gets us into better position to um, to work the program. No alcohol. I mean, that was one of the things that was said to me. Um, by the person who 12-step me, they said, uh, you know, um, abstain from all mood or chemicals. 
Now, you know, that in, to my mind, that includes sugar, white flour, alcohol, any kind of mood-altering drugs. Prescription medications, obviously, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not qualified to talk about that, but, you know, you need to be talking with a healthcare professional who understands addiction and the 12 steps and is in favor of that and will help you to know when, you know, you need to moderate your medication program. Um, but uh, the, it, the, the, the other things that can help, I think, is, is giving a, a sponsee a daily routine. So uh, to have a, a program, you know, I, I, I do this in the morning, I do this at lunchtime, I call my sponsor at this time, and I do this in the evening before I go to bed. Doing this just even for two, for two or three days will get people's feet on the ground. Um, we're we're often really crazy. It's like we've been injected. We've been we've been hit with a cattle prod or um, a, a taser or something like that. You know, and we're we're really shaky, and we need to somehow sort of sort of quiet down, settle down. So I hope that sort of covers that. Yes, well, definitely with the fasting, you made me realize that, that that's actually what I did for the first year. I fasted from media, um, and it was very helpful for me. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so let, let's move to the uh, the step one discussion. Uh, there's a few questions around this. Um, the first one, am I a bad person? Well, absolutely yes and no. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that, as it says in the white in the big book, you know, there's there's good in the worst of us and bad in the best of us. You know, we, we are. We we well, if I could say we do good and we do bad. <laughs> are you a bad person? Yes and no. I mean, let's 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 prescind from that question. Let's say, you know, have you got an illness? Yes, you have. I think that's. That's a more important awareness. So, you know, yeah, you're part of the human race, part of fallen humanity, okay, part of the acceptance, the program is accepting that, okay. I'm never going to be a saint. I'm just going to be an ordinary Joe on the bus, like everyone else, good and bad. But that's not why I act out compulsively. I act out compulsively because I am a lust addict. I, when I get lust in my head, then I have to act out. I can't stop myself. I'm just like the alcoholic who can't stop drinking once they've had the first drink. So this is another, this is a different problem altogether. We're not like normal people. Normal people could probably, if there is such a thing, could look at a piece of pornography and put it down and go on with their day. We look at a piece of pornography and we've stepped onto the Ferris wheel, and we're not going to get off the Ferris wheel until we've gone right the way around, which includes masturbation, you know, probably more pornography and so on, you know. So that, that's the difference. Isn't there, so, a shame, isn't there a shame cycle involved in labelling myself as a bad person, though? Well, only, yeah. Well, you see, I think there is, there is a kind of healthy shame that tells me I'm not God, okay? Right? That's a healthy shame. I think, it, you know, shame is there. It's a feeling, it's, it's designed to help me understand that I'm not God. <laughs> and so that's good. 
Um, but the other side shame is that it's, it's, it's like the, the toxic shame. It says that I'm worthless, I'm useless. You know, God's made crap, basically, and I'm it. Okay, now this is definitely not helpful to anybody, and that has to be named as a defect and surrendered. I have to put toxic shame on my defect list. I'm going to ask God to remove it and to give me a healthy shame. Now you say, oh, healthy shame. Yes, the understanding, the realization that I'm not God, which is humility, isn't it? Right. So, and he's, so he can be God, and I can let him be God, and I can just be an ordinary mortal, fallen, defective in, you know, in, in, in usual human ways, um, and uh, time to clean up. <laughs> it's a spur right. to progress rather than uh, a, a counsel of despair. So shame would not really be the word. It would be humility, really. Um, can you talk a little bit about unmanageability? My sponsor always says that uh, we we pretty much get powerlessness. We we understand it, but we 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 miss the mark on unmanageability. What does that mean to you, unmanageability? Because it, it doesn't mean that I have to lose everything. Absolutely. I mean, and this is where I I I'm one of my early heroes in the program was Clarence Schneider, Cleveland, Ohio, sponsored by Dr. Bob, and 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 he used to hammer this point that it's we usually come in, we understand we're powerless, but, you know, we have missed the point that our life is unmanageable by us and remains unmanageable by us, that I cannot, on my own unaided will, organize and control and manage my life. I need a new employer. I, you know, I need a new director, a new principal. And, um, and this is a sort of a big peace to get. Um, and so in order to get me to the point of saying, I need this uh, higher power in my life, I have to actually see the extent of my manageability. And, and I, sum, I sum it up by saying, you know, by the time I was 42, I had destroyed two marriages, two careers, and lost a huge amount of money. That's, that's my summary of Unmanageability in my life. That's that's what you, man from Mars, were looking at Nicholas's life. That's what he would have seen. Separated from my children, two divorces, uh, lost a huge amount of money, and and yet so so in denial that I believed I just got the wrong careers and the wrong wives. You know, I was trying to get number three in place. You know. Um, so I need God's honesty and selfishness, purity and love if I'm going to lead a useful, constructive life and stop living this destructive um, nightmare. So it actually sounds like, it sounds like a gateway into the fourth step, really. That uh, my life is unmanageable by me, so I need someone else to manage it for me. Well, in yes. third step, and then I mean, I mean the third step, yes. and then in, through into that That's work it. of the fourth step. Mm. Yes. So I then I then need to identify what the reasons for my failure were, and and this is so beautifully explained in, in the big book. It just says that you know they they that uh, they under my underlying problem 
is selfishness, self-centeredness, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-pity, and self-delusion. We tread on the fellows, and it turns our fellows and they retaliate, seemingly without provocation. But often we realize that these, these things have been caused by our actions in the first place. And, um, and so I can't, God can, I think I'll let God, you know, that, and, and now I need to actually identify exactly the hundred forms that have been responsible, the hundred forms of self-fear, self-seeking, etc., that have caused my life to become unmanageable. Because basically what I've done is I've unblocked, I've blocked up the channel of God's grace. His I can't hear his will for me. I can't follow his will for me because I, it's all blocked by my defects. And, and unless I can accept that, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking, well, I'm really a good person. You know, I mean, I recycle, you know, I, I, you know, I've got a conscience. I've had my vaccination. You know, I mean, it's like um, if I cannot see the hopelessness of my condition, I'm not going to grasp for the life preserver like the drowning man. I like that. Uh, I like the, the 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 image that you that you build of this. Uh, I guess pipe being blocked. This pipe between me and and my higher power being blocked by my defects. Mm-hmm. Um, another question: What about the allergy, though? What what does this mean, the allergy? Okay. Because if I'm allergic to something, I don't eat it. Yet I'm allergic to last till I keep on going back for more. Yes. So what do they mean by that? Well, I, I, I think actually that that is a, a part of the uh, understanding that AA had, which is possibly not um, proved to be uh, scientifically sound. What they're really saying is that I have an allergic reaction when I drink alcohol, it sets up a craving for more. When I use lust, look at pornography, whatever it is, it sets up a craving for more. And so allergy might not be the best possible term. I, I, I have a, um, a, a, a reaction that creates craving. That's it. Now, for, uh, I, I know that they've, I've seen some brain scans of, of people sex addict looking at pornography and like quote normal people looking at pornography and the extent to which the brain lights up is completely different so uh, quite a normal person looks at pornography and there's a little bit of lighting up goes on right but someone like me looks at pornography and woof suddenly my brain is full of chemicals and immediately the brain is trying to readjust so it's crashing in the antidote and that creates the craving for more and now I'm in big trouble because I can't stop. The other person stopped. They've gone on and done something else, you know, but me, no, I've got to, I've got to have more and stronger and harder, which is tragically why we see people, you know, progressing down the line into illegal pornography and ending up in prison. They, right. They, know, they don't want to stop, but they can't. And this, you know, tragically, is not understood. So that, you know, in prisons, you know, prisoners... I don't know if it's all prisons, but certainly in a lot of prisons, pornography is readily available. But keep the prisoners medicated, give them pornography. 
it's like they used to do in the navy during the you know in the Napoleonic times. They used to have the sailors permanently drunk, so they could cope with the appalling conditions. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> what we really need is for for sex offenders and 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 anybody else that's got a can't stop problem with lust, you know, is a is a lust free environment as much as possible. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next topic. Um, surrender. I walk into the room and everyone says, oh, I've got to surrender this, and you need to surrender that. And I've never, you know, this is an alien, there's a lot of alien concepts that, that, that happen once I walk, when I walk into the room, this new language. And surrender, I think, is one of them. What, what does that mean, surrender? What, how, what does it look like? How do I stay surrendered? Okay, so admitting to God to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. This is surrender. So when I say I am lusting, I tell you that I'm lusting. And I say to God, please God, remove my lust. I am making a surrender. It's as simple as that. So if I just say, well, I must surrender this, well, it, you know, it, 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 it's sort of, it's almost like a, that's a, a hypothetical exercise, you know, if I knew how to do that. But actually, no, it's saying, Daniel, I'm lusting. I don't want to lust. Uh, ask, humbly ask God to remove this. That's surrender. So doing it directly with God isn't enough? You have to have another person there? Well, you can. There are occasions when there isn't another person present. But we have to admit to ourselves and to God, and if possible, to another human being. It, it's, it's, that's the, that's the, the, the magic of confession. Really. You know, we, we, no, it's not sufficient. Um, except, you know, when there's no other option, God will do. But the proper procedure is to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. Um, and so for you, surrender is in, intimately tied into to the fifth step. But um, what about actions? Are there, other than voicing it, are, are there not other actions involved in taking a surrender and making a surrender? Well, you know. I'm Changing my behavior. Picking up the phone, um, walking through my pride and picking up litter, um, uh, talking to a newcomer, reading some literature, all of these things when you know reading reading some lit essay literature when i really want to watch another video something like that all of these are surrenders of my will and my compulsion for a, a greater cause so yes surrenders can take innumerable forms in, in a sense the best surrenders are the ones that we least want to make okay next topic complacency how do i not uh, 25 years of working a program how do i not get complacent how do i not uh you know once i leave that cloud uh that that pink cloud and come back down to earth and i'm sober for a bit what do i you know wh what do i do to stay uh to stay you know working my program and not just get complacent well it's a bit like a game of snakes and ladders you know and 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 i, uh, I there are times when I get complacent. So what happens then? I mean, I have to say that there have been occasions when I have been kept sober by my higher power. There's no question about it that 
without my higher power actually dropping like an invisible shield down in front of me, I would have gone at that moment. You know, there have been these. But I, the thing is that no, you know, no human power can resolve my lust addiction. But I, I cannot, my part is to dance as far away from the edge of the precipice as possible. So I, you know, that's part of my responsibility is to make sure I'm living as far away from the edge of the precipice as possible. If I'm teetering on the brink, and don't forget, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an adrenaline addict as well, you know, and I like the rashes of saying, you know, oh, I got very close to acting out then, you know, but I just managed to avoid it. You know, and, and now I can, t- can go to the meeting and share my red light story, you know. Well, no, I, again, I have to accept and say that I'm an addict. I like high-risk situations. I need to start living uh, a more sober, serene life as far away from the edge of the precipice as possible and to surrender my boredom as a defect of character. And so my complacency is also a defect of character and I need to get to work the program on that. And it's really simple. Any defect that I have, God has something for me that's better. So what does God have that's for me that's better than complacency? Well, it's it's a, a, a liveliness, um, uh, joie de vivre, um, uh, passion, enthusiasm. And these things are so much better than uh, complacency. So what I need to do is to be aware of that, and I can say to God, please remove, you know, and share it with Daniel as well, actually. Um, Dear God, please remove my complacency, uh, my sloth, my... Couldn't care less, and and give me you know enthusiasm, vive, energy, diligence, passion. Grant me strength. I go out from here to do your bidding, and you know, and and that's it. I'm noticing that throughout this talk, throughout this chat that we're having, you're you're, you're constantly bringing it back to the sixth and seventh step. You're re- referring it back to a defect and and, and focusing your your energies towards the opposite. Uh, it's very interesting for me. Um, and but what about the other side, the flip side, taking the the program too seriously? It's it's not a, it's not a tight jacket. We're meant to a straight jacket, as as Harvey calls it, right? Yes, I, I was helped by an old timer that I used to listen to a lot when I first came into recovery. That the the twelve steps are designed to restore me to life. They're not designed to be my life. And I, you know, I am an enthusiast and I do have definitely tendencies towards scrupulosity and over overzealousness. And so again, I can put those on my defect list and humbly ask God to remove them. So the beauty of our program, it's, it's designed by addicts, for addicts, and it works. So in other words, even if I do the steps with excessive passion and energy and, and become overzealous and overdo it, eventually. If I keep working the steps, it, those bits are going to be smoothed down too. Eventually, I'm going to become this um, elder statesman who can uh, say less, smile more, and uh, and just be in my being an example of what recovery is. 
Thank you. So the next section is around relationships. And I understand that you, 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 all of your time in SA, you haven't been married. Um, what about the person who's asking, um, how do I save my marriage? Do, I mean, do you have anything? Do, can I save my marriage? Coming into SA while they're still married. Do you have anything to say to that? Okay, well, I noticed that when you said that in all the time you've been in SA, you haven't been married, a, a little voice said, yes, you have. Because um, coincidentally with my sobriety date came my decision to keep the promises that I made to the mother of my children. So although others would say, well, legally, you know, you're not married, my, my marriage ended in divorce, you're not married legally. In my heart, I consider myself to be a married man. And so I, I'm, I'm, in a sense, a married man living in a sex-free relationship. Um, and, and, you know, it's not easy. My, uh, the mother of my children uh, doesn't talk to me unless, you know, uh, it's a blue moon. Um, and... Um, but the interesting thing is that this has taught me how God loves us. When I was out there doing all my stuff, you know, my acting out, God loved me. And his love for me was not dependent on my behavior. And uh, in, this, in this situation with my, with my former wife, the mother of my children, I have also learned that love is not dependent on her behavior. And um, it's a, love is not love that changes, that alters when it alteration finds, as Shakespeare put it. It's an ever-fixed mark. So in this situation, I've been taught how God loves us. I've been shown through my own experience how God loves us, what unconditional love looks like. Love somebody and they hate you. Wow. Yeah. And... So when I'm dealing with married people, I'm probably the toughest wall they're going to bounce off when they're trying to persuade themselves that it would be a good idea to get another wife, to renege on their marriage vows. And I would say, look, this is my situation. I left. Five years after I left, I came to my senses. I realized I still loved her. She was the woman that God had for me. And so I've committed myself to her. I've been faithful to her for 26 years. Now, you tell me about what you, why you want to be unfaithful to your wife, you know. And, uh, um, and it kind of you know, helps people to see that, that this is not about my pleasure. It's like there's a much bigger and more important game going on, which is about, you know, somehow about eternal destinies and, and, um, and, Faithfulness in marriage is one of the primary ways we get to grow up. I've seen it again and again. Sexaholic gets sober, finds his marriage to the wife from hell, and it's for his good. That by loving her, taking the actions of love towards her, and I could change the, change, change the sexes, male and female, it doesn't matter, the other way around, but by, by loving one spouse, no matter how hellish the spouse is behaving, no matter how hellish my disease is trying to get out and you know, reignite, I can 
nonetheless, stay, stay, stay faithful. Then I get to grow. I mean, I have seen it. I, I tell you, I promise you, I have seen members of this fellowship who've married uh, in sobriety or, or, you know, or got married when they were sober, made a sober decision to marry, then end up in the most horrendous situations where their wife is campaigning for divorce or, or, or you know, not, not speaking for months on end, no sex and all kinds of stuff. And I could just say, great. She's doing a really good job of helping you to grow. Because, you know, when you got to the point where you are absolutely certain that no matter how badly she behaves, it's going to be water off a duck's back, then you've really grown up. You've lost your fear of angry women. You've lost your fear of not having sex. You've lost your fear of all kinds of things because you've realized that love, who loves wins? Who lusts loses? That's very interesting. Um, I, I always like to equate the faithfulness of marriage to the, the faithfulness that I have to have with my higher power, that third step. Um, so it, uh, it, I relate a lot to what you're saying. Uh, it rings true. When we've experienced it ourselves, we, we understand. You know, I understand that God loves me so much that he would do everything in his power to be with me. And the only thing that can stop that is me. And also this concept that he's not doing anything bad at all, that everything this ultimately for my higher good, and he yes. knows exactly what he's doing. Yes. So I can be grateful then that I am a sexaholic, because if I wasn't a sexaholic, you know, I couldn't have helped you know, thousands of people to get sober and stay sober. I, I couldn't. I, I just wouldn't have the necessary qualifications. So I'm glad that I'm a sexaholic. I didn't cause it. I can't control it and I can't cure it. You know, I could say that God allowed me to become a sexaholic. And I'm glad. Wouldn't and so what about, what about the single essay that you mentioned before? When can they get into a relationship? Right. Well, again, I, I'm a bit of a radical on this one. Um, I don't believe in setting any time limits on it. What I would say is, that you must have worked all 12 steps of SA successfully. So you're going to be, you're going to have to work, you'll have worked steps one to eight complete. You'll be more than halfway through your amends and you'll be working steps 10, 11 and 12 on a daily basis. For by that time, sanity will have returned and you'll have some chance of making an informed and sensible decision about who to marry. Although if they're still relapsing, then sanity hasn't fully returned. Oh, no. I agree. But, so, but I'm not saying that you know, you've got to be sober a year or three years or anything like that. I'm saying you've got to, have, you've got to be sober and have done, those, done, done, done all 12 steps. All right. Thank you. So uh, the next topic is around the higher power and a spiritual awakening. Um, what does what does a higher power mean for you? How do you communicate with your higher power? Really interesting. Again, the the, the big book is absolutely brilliant on this. It says, you know, um, how and where are we to find this power? So, where the where answer is deep deep down within. 
you know, God is 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 in us in uh, an important sense, um, and and uh, and and how do we find that power? Is by working the twelve steps. That's, you know, we work the twelve steps. That's how we find God. And and um, there's a prayer associated for the fifth step, which begins, um, "I thank you from the bottom of my heart that I know you better." I've just done the fifth step, and I know you better as a result of doing the fifth step. Amazing. Doing the sixth and seventh step. You referred to the sixth and seventh step before. I mean, just that this is the this is the, the the core of the program, which many people never get to. Never get to a real ass- assessment of the extent of their defects of character and the power of God, which must be necessary in order to shift that a lot. So what is a spiritual awakening? Okay, so I say a spiritual awakening is a change in my feelings, my attitudes, and my beliefs. So the process of going through the steps results in my feeling things differently. I start to be able to notice the difference between what's a thought and what's a feeling. I start to be able to identify my feelings better. I, I, I'm also have a better attitude towards people. I'm beginning now to let go of my resentments, to surrender my fears, to make amends for the things that I'm guilty about, to relieve myself of resentments, fears, and guilts. So my attitudes have changed. And my beliefs, I no longer you know, believe that uh, I am all powerful, all good, <laughs> uh, capable of relieving my own addiction, that I have no defects. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, these, the, a lot of dysfunctional beliefs in here, um, I would say one of them nowadays, which is a real challenge, is that there is objective right and wrong. Some things are right. And some things are wrong. And and I need to be clear about that. And I need to be doing the things that are good and esteemable so that I can feel self-esteem and not doing the things that are bad and low so I can avoid feeling guilty and low self-esteem. All right. So uh, the next section is long-term sobriety. What does sobriety mean to you? What is sobriety? Okay. Um, as I say, great question. This gives me a little more time to think about it. <laughs> um, I am a sexual being. I've been... I've been made that way. And... There's nothing bad about that. Um, It's just about, am I expressing that rightly? Am I using it in the right way? Am I using it in the way that God intended? Or am I using it as something that is generative, um, giving, clean? Or am 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 I using it for some kind of selfish? Am I, am I abusing it? 
And I think that, so sexual sobriety long-term means becoming fully adult, fully male or female, and fully accepting of the realities of my own condition, the world, and everything about me, you know. But things need to be in the right place, seeing things right way up. And um, sanity for this, it says, promise of step 10, by this time, sanity will have returned. Um, I was insane before. I was using a gift given to me by God for the procreation of children for uh, entertainment and uh, sleeping medication and uh, um, excitement. And, and today, um, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm, I have a sense of being comfortable in my own skin because I accept exactly who I am, what happened, um, and I made my amends and I'm living a good life. So it's a challenging question, really. Is there anything more I could say about that? Well, that's physical and, I guess, sexual sobriety. What about emotional sobriety? What does emotional sobriety mean to you? Right. Okay. Well, emotional sobriety is a very, very interesting journey. And I, I, I don't hear many people saying the same things that, that I, the same conclusions that I've come to on this. But one important conclusion is this understanding the difference between a thought and a feeling. Feeling is something that goes on in my body. In bodily emotion happens below the neck, right? Or, or actually, could also I could feel it in my face as well. But uh, but it's 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 a physical thing. And then there's a thought. So I no longer allow myself to say things like, "I feel lonely." Now I know it. I I. I, I, feel, I feel sad because I imagine I'm on my own. <laughs> and, uh, or, uh, you abandoned me. I feel that you abandoned me. <laughs> I feel angry because I imagine that you're abandoning me. You know, I'm actually now separating what's going on between my ears and what's going on actually in my body. Um, I think another important aspect of emotional sobriety is is not reacting to the first, not, not the knee-jerk reaction. So if something happens and I can hold it, breathe, and let the feeling subside, and then decide whether anything needs to be said. And often it doesn't. You know, so situations that used to just result in knee-jerk reaction followed by another knee-jerk reaction followed by, you know, about a shame and remorse or something, you know. Now it's 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 just the boron rods go into the nuclear reactor, calms down, and just there's no overreaction. And uh, I think it's true, you know. As old, old timers get older, you know, we we say less, um, and we convey more by just our serenity, our presence. 
when there's when the king when there when the king is in the kingdom, there is order in the kingdom. When the king is present, there is order in the kingdom. Wow. Okay, a little bit about the steps. How would you describe the steps? Wow. Well, this is my favorite topic, of course, and the steps have changed my life beyond all recognition. Um, again, a program designed by addicts for addicts and it works. Uh, was very much more religious in content in, uh, in the early days, has become now rather more secular, uh, and so that it can be worked by pretty well anyone, except I would say for somebody who absolutely rejects the idea of a higher power. Um, it's, um, it, it has one single result, explicit single result, which is you do these things, you will have a spiritual awakening, changing your feelings, attitudes, and beliefs, become the kind of person who no longer needs to act out compulsively. And um, the, 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 the method of working the steps that was captured in the big book, unfortunately, is particularly onerous and people, lock, people get a lot stuck on it. I'm not a fan of that particular method, uh, although I have worked that method and I've had some benefit from doing so. Um, I, I believe that the steps should be worked in a, short period of time, typically in the olden days when they were getting in excess of 90% success rate, the steps would be worked in a day or two. Uh, it's not designed. It's not designed as a long-term career. So um, I would love to, yes, I suppose if I could get in a time machine, what I would like to do is go back and have like a day in the life of Dr. Bob because on average, he was taking like more than one person a day through the 12 steps for 11 years. That's what he was doing. That's how he was staying sober. That's what he meant by carrying the message, taking other people through the 12 steps. So it's really important to get through them ourselves and to, um, uh, and to take other people through. Um, I don't think we really understand the steps until we've taken at least one other person through the steps. Um, I've been privileged to take many hundreds of people through the steps, and uh, every time I do, I, I, I benefit, I, I grow, I learn a little bit more, you know, and to say God not, God's not finished with me yet. Mm, so there, there, is a, there is a... Um, but there is a... Uh, What's the right word? There is an argument to say that uh, doing them fast and doing them thoroughly is both important, I think. I agree. Absolutely. And that's why, for instance, you know, if, if anybody does the steps and doesn't come out with a list of at least 100 defects of character, they're not doing it thoroughly in my book. To think that there are three defects, fear, resentment, and guilt, no, 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 no doesn't cut it. <laughs> no. Right, I, but still thoroughly meaning, I, I, what I mean thoroughly is not just with a, a, a longer list of defects, but I mean going in depth and spending some time on each step. Um, not to argue against the point that there's a, a good argument to get them done and to do them quickly, but I'm saying we don't, the steps aren't something that you do just once. Are well, they? Uh, it, 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 the it, it should be sufficient 
to do the steps thoroughly once, and then everything else is 10, 11, and 12. Because, because 10 is, a, is, is another, 10, 11, and 12 is, a, is the whole program again. You know, I mean, it's doing it again. Um, it's the, you know, it's the surrender, it's the entry, and so on. Um, I, in my ideal world, people would do the step once thoroughly. Uh, they would then help other people through the 12 steps, and they would be doing most of their step work from then onwards would be done as they worked with other people. Mm. Because this addiction problem is so huge, global. I mean, we're talking now billions of people who are addicted in all kinds of different ways. And we are, we have, we have the, we have the solution. So each of us needs to be taking hundreds of people through the 12 steps, who in turn need to take hundreds of others through the, through the 12 steps if we're going to have any impact on the growth of addiction. So that's, that's kind of my model. If you spend, I, I mean, I, classic case, one of my sponsors decided they wanted to do a big book style four step without my, you know, uh, direction uh, and produced 80 pages of resemblance and then invited me to listen to them. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. You and I have got better things to do with our time than listing every single body in diff uh, resentment you've ever had. Okay, resentment is one single defect and you've got 200 others, you know. So let's get that just written down, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, you know, toxic guilt, toxic shame, and let's get them surrendered to God. And then start paying back. Use that time that you could have used doing those, those steps in depth, in more depth, to help other people. And you'll be doing them in more depth by doing it with them. In a That's sense, you're a bit of a you're a bit of a radical, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, you guessed. You noticed. <laughs> After all this time, Daniel. <laughs> I love it. Um, is ego the issue? At the core, uh, yes, in a way, because it's, because it's my will and God's will. It's about God's given me free will. Proper use of the will of my will is to align it with God. But most of my life, I spent aligning it in the opposite direction. Nowadays, I want to align my will with God's because I know that God's will is the best deal in town. There's nothing better. So why not? What what have I got to lose by aligning my will with God's? But He gives me still the use of the will. I still have the use to use it for his good purposes. And so taking people through the 12 steps, helping to carry the message, helping other people to get sober, stay sober, this is good for me. It's enlightened self-interest. So I'm still, you know, undoubtedly selfish, self-centered, but I'm self-centered in the kind of prudent way <laughs> and not in a stupid way. Right. Um, okay, and finally about meetings. What what should I share in meetings? What am I supposed to share about? So um, in meetings, I share my experience of being powerless, my life being unmanageable, finding the 12 steps and getting sober. My, I, I share my strengths, my human strengths, 
the strength that I have from being part of the fellowship and the strength that I experience from God and my hope, my hope for my own sobriety, that life will continue to get better, that I will be with God one day and that you as a newcomer can get sober too. So it's like that's the thing that what people come into the program, they experience they are they're, they're, they're experiencing disaster, uh, they have no strength and they have no hope. So this is what I can share with them and I can help them. So when they leave the meeting, they can say, I know there's a solution here. I know what I need to do to access that solution. And there's real hope now. It's hope for me. And so, so this is what I need to share. So what does it mean that, um, what's the difference between a sick meeting and a healthy meeting if I'm going in there and being healthy and sharing the right way? Okay, so in, in a sick meeting, I'm just going there and dumping my bucket. I'm, I'm taking you all my dysfunction and basically I'm, I'm, I'm splurging it all out, vomiting it all um, in, in, into the meeting and then expecting that the newcomer is going to go away saying, I want what he has. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but, I, yeah, I hear that. Uh, I, I guess that um, my question was more about if I'm in the solution and I'm sharing what, you know, uh, of, of my experience, strength and hope and how I found God and how I found the power. Um, but I'm, I, am I still doing it in, if I'm doing it in a sick meeting, then I'm still, then, then I'm raising the bar for that meeting and making it healthy, I guess. So really the meeting is about the person, the individual inside the meeting. Yes. So if, if we can have as many people as possible sharing in this positive way their experience, strength, and hope, this is going to make the meeting more healthy. But I think it's also possible for a meeting to become irredeemably sick so that one person going to that meeting actually comes away worse than when they arrive. And, and it, so in that case, that's where I think Roy K got into talking about the surrender and accountability meetings, the idea of having a sort of almost like a second layer within the fellowship of, of meetings that were smaller and much, much stronger. First of all, I want to thank you very much. I've, I, it's been a real experience and I've learned a lot about you and a lot about your program and, uh, and, and uh, it's been really interesting. And the, the format is we're finishing with three, uh, three questions. Um, that uh, we're asking every everyone that we speak with. And here's the first question. What is the most important thing for you in the program? I've, there's so many things I'm, that I'm, I'm sort of going to yeah, well, that's important, that's important, that's important. That's, what is the most important? I'm tempted to say, the most important thing is that the fellowship is the substitute for lust. We need a substitute for lust. And the fellowship, that's the fellowship. The fellowship in Sexholics Anonymous. That's beautiful. Um, the next question is, have 
the 12 promises of the ninth step, have they all come true in your life? I would say undoubtedly. I'm experiencing those on a daily basis. And finally, what's the biggest gift that you've received from recovering an essay? Well, I, I have a relationship with God today. I mean, I, 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 I know who I am. I know who he is. And I know we're in our right places. He's God. I'm Nicholas. And it's like going back to our dear friend Harvey, you know, he loved me while I was out there doing all that stuff. And now I'm sober. He's hog ass wild about me. And it's great living in that relationship. So in a sense, that is everything. With, without that, I was just a, a, a sick sexaholic flapping about without any direction other than lust, using lust as my navigation tool to get through life you know, and, and, and causing immense harm to myself, others, making a right mess. But today I, I've, I'm like, like a gyroscope. I'm, I stay in my orientation no matter what chaos is happening around me. Wow. Well, thank you again so much, Nicholas. It really has been a pleasure and uh, I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's essay Fireside Chat. We hope you've enjoyed listening and gained as much as we have producing it. Anything you've heard on this podcast is strictly the opinion of the individual speaker. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. If you have any questions you would like to pose to today's speaker or a burning desire to reach out to them, you can write to me at daniel at essayfireside.com. Remember, Essay is self-supporting through its own contributions. You can donate to Seventh Tradition by going to essay.org forward slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit essayfireside.com to hear all the previous Fireside chats as well as the future ones as soon as they're released. May God bless you and keep you until then.